What great truths there are in that song that is even our own profession, our own testimony in one form or another, and also how true it is that it marries right into our text this morning from Matthew 11, where we'll be turning now as we read the first 11 verses. We come to a new section of Scripture in the next two chapters as we have closed out chapter 10. Now hear the Word of God, Matthew 11, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would strengthen us and strengthen our faith in the finished work of Christ and in him personally. May we embrace him with all the greater capacity. And so we ask that your spirit would work in us and through us. And bring forth a great harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. That with greater faith we may have greater love and greater peace. Greater joy. We pray that if there's anyone here among us today who's struggling with their salvation. Or even with their assurance. That you would bring the light of the gospel to bear upon that soul. And cause the weariness to flee. And the joy to return. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. What Matthew has been doing for 10 chapters already is he has been giving evidence that this man, Jesus, is God's Messiah, the Anointed One. And he has given us far more evidence than we actually need. From chapter 11 all the way up to the time of Holy Week, There are continued evidences that Matthew gives that Jesus, this man Jesus, is the Christ, is Messiah. And we have just ended chapter 10, but there is so much more evidence, more than we need. And that is God's just gracious and merciful favor to continue to shore us up in our weaknesses. Beginning in chapter 11, Matthew changes his character. And so as we think ahead, just to very briefly, we look at the survey of these two chapters that we will be entering this morning. And as he begins to give all of this evidence, and has already done so, turn your attention with me very quickly to a few of these verses. At the end of verse 20, he says, Because they did not repent. In chapter 12, verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 10, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Verse 24, and now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And in verse 38, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, 
we want to see a sign from you. Now it calls our attention here to some of the major sections of the next two chapters. And as Matthew has been giving evidences of who this Jesus is, accompanied by his authenticating works, we have here in chapters 11 and 12 the various responses to the very proofs that Matthew has been offering. And they range here from mere questioning of what's actually going on, or questioning who is this man, all the way up to blaming him or accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. What we have in the opening of our passage this morning, we have a record of an individual who is doubting Jesus. With all those evidences available, with everything that Matthew has been expounding, we have a doubting man. There are doubts of various kinds. Not all doubts are the same. We have the doubts of a total skeptic. He doubts in order to debunk or to scorn. We also have doubts of those kinds of people who almost feel like it's their responsibility to doubt, like an intellectual honesty to, to doubt the facts. We also have doubts like John the Baptist. And this morning I want to talk to you about a true believer's doubts. Spurgeon, a prince of preachers back in the 19th century, who we know the name well because of the ministry that he had, says, I quote, I must confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit, which I trust none of you are called to suffer. And at such times I have doubted my interest in Christ, my calling, my election, my perseverance, my Savior's blood, and my Father's love. From the Prince of Preachers. Christians, we have doubts. Calvin would suggest that we shouldn't be surprised when doubt creeps into our lives. He says, surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. And here we have John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, who knew of his ministry as he proclaimed the way before the coming one. Who turned and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who proclaimed the kingdom of God and the message is upon you because the King has drawn near. And we find him here, doubting. Jesus, are you really the Christ? Let's look a little bit more at this as we trust the Spirit would encourage us this morning in the Gospel. Notice the nature of this doubt. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? The nature of John's doubt had everything to do with the person of Jesus. It always has to do with the 
person of Jesus. The identity of this man, Jesus. Who is the reality of this man? Who is this man? Some say he's a prophet. As Josh McDowell would said, you're either going to believe him as a, as a lunatic or a liar or the Lord. When you take all the evidence, you're going to be left with one of those three conclusions. And truly, there's only one that stands up. But who is this Jesus? That's what it all really comes down to. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that turned the world upside down that millions upon millions since his coming have been turned and given their lives and continue to do so? And what is remarkable is here's a man who was very close to him in his ministry, who knew him well, who had leaped in his mother's womb before he was even born, who was a preacher of this man, Jesus, and we find him doubting. He knew of himself to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The one who said about himself, I am the one crying out in the wilderness. I am not he, but I am the one preparing the way for that one. And he points to him. He sees him. He baptized him. He saw the Spirit of God lighting upon him as a dove. And he's doubting. What are some of the contributing factors to his doubt? We find there... In this passage, that he was in prison. You might know why he was in prison. He was taken in prison by Herod because of John's preaching of judgment and calling Herod to repentance. Herod took him, put him in his prison, in his palace, which was down in a side of a mountain on the coast of the Dead Sea. During the time of John's imprisonment, so we are told, and Josephus gives us some of this background regarding this context, that it was in the hottest time of the year. And for six to nine months, John was in the prison in Herod's palace there. And he had great circumstances. Sometimes circumstances are contributing factors because our circumstances affects our body and our mind and our emotions. It can make one more vulnerable to spiritual attacks of the enemy to sow seeds of doubt. But doubt is not merely an intellectual matter. It's a matter of the spirit. And body and spirit in this life are inseparable. And this body has weakness and inherit with it through the fall of man. And one of the biggest lessons of wisdom that we can gain from Job is when your circumstances of life do not harmonize with your theology, you never change your theology to conform to your circumstances. But what is the answer from Job's wisdom? Trust God. You don't see it all. Trust God. So we do see that his circumstances were a contributing factor. But the main thing I think here is his presuppositions. Not only did he have some challenging circumstances, but there are some presuppositions that were evident that I think the text brings out. And we, we have evidence of that in verse 2 when it says, And 
He was in prison and he heard about the works of Christ. The works of Christ. Now remember, Christ is the Greek term of Messiah, the Anointed One. It's not the name of Jesus. Jesus is the name of the man. Christ is the title. It's an appellative. It is who He is as the mediator. And as Christ, He comes and He operates as prophet, priest, and king. This is only the second time Matthew has used this appellative the first time was all the way back in Matthew 1.18. And he has given evidence for this Jesus who is the Christ in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And now here, John is questioning the works of Christ. Now here we have the ministry of John the Baptist that was previously revealed. If you have your Bibles, if you go back to chapter 3, and I want you to look at that ministry of John the Baptist. This is what John was doing. Verse, chapter 3, verse 10. And by the way, the Word of God was written in order to be heard. But we live in such a, a grand time in the kingdom of God that we have printed Bibles And I would encourage you, if you don't bring your Bibles to church, to bring your Bibles to church. Because in the manner in which I read and sometimes unpack the Scriptures, you will have so much more fruitfulness from the message if you can follow and track along with it. And particularly this morning, that will be the case. In Matthew chapter 3, Notice here John's ministry as he speaks and says, And now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the weed into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Every verse ends in a threat. John had been bearing witness to the Messiah's judgment. And John has been in prison and he hears what Jesus has been doing. And he hears that Jesus has been compassionate and being patient with people and healing their diseases and feeding the hungry. And so he begins to question, is is this the one? Are you the expected one from what I hear? Or should we look for another? Analogous to Elijah. Elijah had doubts. Elijah, the great prophet who was called and sent to confront King Ahab, king of Israel. And there he has a great spiritual victory on Mount Carmel against the the prophets of Baal, which the people had gone over to serve. And in the midst of all of that confrontation, he then slew the prophets of Baal and in a sense was untouchable. And yet the next thing we know, he's running for his life and questioning God. What happened? 
there was a misplaced or misunderstood presupposition. He expected the whole nation to turn to God after the Carmel event, and it did not happen the way that he expected. And so he also believed he was the only one and the only faithful one left, but God revealed to them, no, Elijah, I've preserved 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah had a particular perspective in his mind, but that was very limited, and that limited perspective bred some presuppositions that were less than accurate. And from those less than what I would call comprehensive presuppositions or based on the comprehensiveness of God's plan, it led to his doubt. Because we all have limited perspectives. We all have a very limited understanding of God and what he's doing. That's why faith is not merely an intellectual matter. And neither is its opposite, doubt. So in John's expectation of Messiah, when he comes, John's thinking he's coming in judgment, fire, setting it right. And what he hears Jesus is, what he's been doing is not really consistent with what John had been preaching. In fact, to John, what Jesus was doing seems to be a contradiction to what John had been preaching about the coming one. And now notice how Jesus answers. Now, Jesus could have simply said, uh, yes or no, John. That's not what he does. In fact, graciously, that's not what he does. He not only gives him an answer, but he gives it to him with such a fullness and such depth and such great clarity that it will resonate with John. He gives us more than what we need. Jesus answered back in chapter 11 now and said to him, go and tell John the things that you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, I want you to notice Luke's version of this. Because Luke inserts something that Matthew does not insert here. And I'll read it from Luke's edition. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now here, this is the insertion. In that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and the evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and now tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor of the gospel preach to them. The question comes from John by his emissaries to Jesus, Are you the one? And before he sends his messages back, messengers back with the answer, right then he takes the opportunity, that very hour, he heals and he cleanses and he helps and he causes all of these. And he said, now go and tell John what you have just seen and what you've just witnessed. Go and tell John that. Exactly the way that you saw it and exactly the way I'm telling you. So they do. 
when we think about Jesus in ways or when Jesus doesn't do what we expect for him to do, it breeds our doubt. And the best thing to do with our doubts, when you have doubts about Jesus, when you have doubts about your salvation, the best thing for you to do is the same thing that John did. Take it to Jesus. Take it straight to Jesus. This is not a place to fall back on rational argument. This is not a place to try to put everything together intellectually. This is not a time to try to harmonize all the circumstances from our very limited perspective. Our minds will never be intellectually satisfied with all of an explanation. Ever. You can forget that. At some point, faith will come into the picture, and it must come into the picture. And faith always has an object. But faith won't be completely understanding the object. But get this, and you hear it for, for good. Faith never limits itself by understanding. Faith never limits itself by understanding. And therefore, you should never limit your faith by understanding. Do you understand the Trinity? Do you understand the, the hypostatic union of Christ? Do you understand some of the deep things of God and why God does the things the way He does? That's exactly what He was telling Job. Job, were you here when I framed the foundations of the earth? Why do I do it this way? And why does this happen? And all it's doing is it's silencing Job because Job is confessing, I don't know. I don't know. God's trying to do to Job is He's trying to get His attention back on God to trusting. With the idea that God knows. So how can we get this faith when we are having doubts? Well, you go right to Jesus. And you do just what John did. And you take your doubts to God in prayer. And you open up to God and you confess to God. God, I just, I'm doubting you. I'm struggling Some people feel like that could be blasphemous. I'd rather go to the preacher and tell him that I'm having these struggles. And perhaps maybe he can be a help and an encouragement to you in this. But source of that's not going to be fixed by him, but by the one that you doubt. And if you went to the pastor and you told the pastor, I'm having doubts in God, God heard that. You might as well just go to God directly and share your heart with him. God is so merciful. He's going to listen. And not only that, he's going to give you far more than what you need in order to solve this problem. And you go to God in prayer and you lay it out before him and you go to Jesus like John did. Are you the one? Help me here, Lord. And then you turn to his word and you listen back what the answer is. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with John. And God's not going to give you a minimal answer. And I think you can expect that God will give you more than what you really need. More evidence than what you actually asked for. And this is what Jesus did with John. Now notice Jesus' response in verse 5. And it was very revealing.
And what he does, he says, the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers cleanse and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. What is he doing here? He's not merely just expressing what he just did in terms of taking the answer, taking the opportunity, healing the blind, causing the deaf to hear, and causing a lame man to walk. But he quotes from two scriptures with this answer while in the midst of fulfilling it. I want you to hold a lot of things up in the air for just a few minutes in your mind. Let's go to those scriptures that he quotes. The first one is found in the one that I read from this morning from Isaiah 35. You have your Bibles turned back there. In Isaiah 35, this is what he's quoting. While he just fulfilled it in the presence of the emissaries who are going to be sent back with the answer. Now notice this, it says, say to those, in verse 4, say to those who are fearful hearted. Say to those who are doubting. Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness as streams in the desert. That's the first passage that he is quoting. The second passage, if you keep your finger there, is in Isaiah 61. And he quotes from this as well. What Jesus is doing is he's giving John the word. He's giving him the scriptures that John well knew. And yet fulfilling it and showing the relationship between himself and those fulfilled passages of prophecy. In Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. These are the two passages that our Lord quotes. Both of those passages refer to what the Messiah will do when he comes. And those very things are spoken of in Jesus. He's comforting the brokenhearted people. He's meeting their needs. He's performing miraculous signs. And right in the middle of that is John's theme. In both of those passages. In Isaiah 35, Behold, your God will come with a vengeance and He will recompense. This was John's message. Isaiah 61, And the day of vengeance of our God. This was John's theme. This was what John was called to preach about the coming Messiah. His vengeance. His judgment. I want you to Consider another incident from Jesus' life where the same psalm or the same passage from Isaiah was quoted. After John had baptized Jesus, Jesus enters into his Galilean ministry. He goes to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue. In the first sermon he preaches in, in, in Nazareth in the synagogue was from this passage. He enters the synagogue and 
he then stands up and he opens the scroll and he finds his way to Isaiah 61 and he reads from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And as he's reading this, he goes all the way through verse 1 and if you have it there in front of you, Follow your eyes down, and I'll pick it up at the end of verse 1. To proclaim the liberty of the captives, the opening of the prison, those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops. And he does not finish that verse. Now, from our perspective, that would be somewhat unexpected. In his day, there was not the chapter and verse markings quite like we have it so delineated. But he doesn't complete verse 2. He stops before he gets to end the day of the vengeance of our God. And he stops right there as he goes to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord after he does all of these things. And he says to the people in the synagogue that day, now this day, this scripture is being fulfilled in your midst. These passages contain the comforting, healing ministry of Messiah as well as his judgment upon the earth. But John was commissioned to give those warnings and so much was his ministry that it formed presuppositions that led to his doubt because he was not giving a comprehensive view. He was so focused on the judgment aspect of Messiah, he didn't see and perhaps maybe even forgot about the compassionate ministry of the Messiah. It was right in front of him. And what he didn't understand intellectually is that Messiah would come back and take care of the judgment part. He didn't understand that. The first coming of Christ was not in the fire of judgment, but for the proclamation of the liberty to the captives. The fire would come, but it would come later. And John was so focused on the fire of judgment, that's what he was giving the emphasis to. And that emphasis of his ministry led him to a less than comprehensive view of the Messiah. That, those presuppositions bred the doubt. Vengeance was coming, oh yes. John had only one part of the Messiah's work in mind. And that's often what happens to true believers. To you. And to me. And we're put in difficult circumstances. We go through difficult trials and perhaps even a very sustained trial. Trial of the body and of the mind where emotions are affected. And we go and we search our Bibles for the answers and We have a few verses that we're clinging to. But when we do, there are always other verses that you have to hold at the same time. You have to hold it all up together comprehensively. And our faith is often weak. And while we might be focusing on the transcendence of God, we're forgetting His eminence. Or while we're focusing on the love of God, we're forgetting His sovereignty. Or when we're focusing on the goodness, we don't think He's all-powerful. When we're focused on that sovereignty, we tend to neglect that He truly is good to His people in all things, in every circumstance. 
And you can't simply walk away from the Lord and all that truth simply because you're only seeing one limited side of God's works and only a very limited perspective of what He is doing. Our Lord was calling John's attention to what Jesus was doing scripturally and predictably and establishing it with evidence right before the eyes of the emissaries who would then take the passage quoted back to John so he could put all those dots together and say, ah, yes. It was much more than a simple, yes, John, I am the coming one. This was making John sort through all of the Scriptures and wrestle through them and connect the dots. So he says, ah, yes, yes, I see it now. And it's the Scripture. It's the speaking of God. It is His revelation, not just to our intellect, but to our spirit that's going to bring the assurance that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Once again, Spurgeon says, I've told you before that some years ago in his autobiography, I felt a great depression of spirit. I knew whom I had believed, but somehow I could not get the comfort out of the truth preached, the truth that I preached. I began to wonder whether I was really saved. And having a holiday and being away from home, I went to the Wesleyan Chapel, and a local preacher occupied the pulpit that morning while he preached a sermon full of the gospel. The tears flowed from my eyes And I was in such a perfect delirium of joy on hearing the gospel, which I so seldom have the opportunity of doing, that I said, oh yes, there is spiritual life within me, for the gospel can touch my heart and stir my soul. The simplicity of the gospel had to even be touched to this preacher who had been preaching it for so long that he had to sit under it once again to be reaffirmed and for Christ to freshen his faith. This was the prince of preachers who also needed the gospel like every one of us. And then our Lord closes with a blessing. Verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble at me. Now he's not saying this, I don't think, in rebuke to John's doubting. I think think he's saying this as a blessing to those and encouragement for us not to stumble at Jesus. Blessed is he, happy is he, fulfilled and satisfied is he going to be that does not stumble at over Jesus, or stumble over Mary's virginity at the time of Jesus' birth. Blessed is he who does not stumble over Jesus' miracles, who does not stumble over the Trinity, who does not stumble over the sovereignty of God in all things. Because there will be challenges to your mind, and there's going to be challenges to your intellect, and challenges to your reason, and challenges to your reasoning and logic. And when you go to ask the Lord in prayer, O Lord, help me in my doubts, you will have to be prepared that He may cause you to intellectually stumble in order to bring you 
into a strong faith that will dispel your doubts. He's going to bring you to things that you don't have anything to compare to. You won't have any analogies. No other cases that you can look back upon and say, well, of your, yes, of course, I can accept that. So if they happen to do that here, then perhaps maybe that's the case. You won't be able to do that. He's going to bring you to an end of your intellectual capacity at some point. And you're going to have to accept the gospel accounts that there is so much more about God's ways in the ministry of Jesus Christ that can be intellectually sorted out, but that is scriptural. And it's from the Word of God that gives faith. And blessed are the people who do not stumble at that. And there's a whole world out there. Much of it we can't even see. Much of it we don't understand. We know so little about. There's an entire invisible world that God has created that... We know very little about, and your blessing will come by just resting in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Resting, resting in Jesus. Calvin understood that doubt was a part of our faith experience because of the comprehensive truth about God and His goodness is so outside of what we can fully understand. And he says, quote, for unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts that we are so inclined to it that not without a hard struggle is each one able to persuade himself of what all confess with the mouth, namely, that God is faithful. In other words, the the greatest of the theologians and preachers who have ever lived have had doubts in a season of their life or, or more. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary who was faced with all kinds of spiritual challenges. Gives us a great word of encouragement here. He says, quote, we need to stop striving to have faith and just rest in the faithful one. Does that make sense? Do you know how sometimes we can just turn faith into a work itself and we just strive to have faith and we work it up and try to... Conjure it within our spirit and we just simply need to take God at His word and rest in His faithfulness. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, has encouraged us when he says, where reason can't wade, faith can swim. And that's what truly pleases God. Today, are you resting in the faithful one? No doubt... You have had doubts at some time in your life of the assurance of your salvation. Perhaps maybe today you're struggling with that in your own spirit. does not mean that you are not saved. But it does mean that there's some uh, turmoil in your life and some chaos going on in your spirit. And there's faith that needs to be strengthened and doubts that need to be dispelled. And what you need to do is take the Word of God and you need to take these doubts to Jesus and you need to read the Word of God. And in that, the Spirit will assure you that you are His child. God will speak. But don't try to do this intellectually. 
how hard it is sometimes for us to go anywhere but the Word. To tell everybody else or to post it on Facebook, but not to tell God. It's so easy for us to do, and yet it is taking it to Jesus. So that He can relieve those burdens. Come unto me, all you who labor. Heavy laden, I will give you rest. Give you peace. I'm going to give you that which you need. But come unto me, he says. Cast all of your burdens upon the Lord, for he cares for you. And be assured that as you, the reading of Scripture is not merely something that goes on intellectually. It is the living Word of God that cuts asunder between soul and spirit. And God Himself is speaking to you through the Word. And the Spirit will quicken that to your heart and spirit. If you're here today and you're doubting, just do what John did. Go and tell Jesus. Get into His Word. And see that He is the Messiah. The Son of God. And the Gospel is true. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, I pray for these people here, for every one of them to be sure of their salvation and to be spiritually assured of it by the testimony of the Spirit. And that there would not be any here with false assurance. That would be a deception to their own spirit. But we pray that You would give them the certainty of of the Word of God, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God and the Messiah, and and that we might entrust ourselves into His care. And Lord, I pray for these, Your people, that You would strengthen them in their spirit, that You would cast out the doubts and replace it with strong faith. And I pray for this preacher who has preached these things this morning, that You would do this for me, and You would strengthen me in these truths. And that you would quicken my spirit and enliven my soul with the joy of the gospel. That we might know that Jesus is the Son of God. And that we might cast ourselves upon him in every circumstance and trial of life. That we might be assured that he is good and gracious. And he is one who does heal us. And who also is the one coming in judgment. Thank you, Father, for revealing your truths to us today. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.